Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and practice leaders, hosted by Cheryl Toth and Mike Sakopoulos, and produced by Green Branch Publishing. Hippa New Year, Mike. Well, Hippa New Year to you too, Tothy. In all seriousness, Happy New Year, friend. Did you have an exciting uh, New Year's Eve? Uh, well, yes, I did. And uh, I think exciting would have to be, uh, I guess it's all relative. It may not have been exciting for a younger person. But, you know, years ago, I used to always think, hey, I want to go to some big fancy party and get dressed up and go out. And then the day of New Year's Eve would come along and I would regret that decision <laughs> and wish I could just stay <laughs> home. So last year, I started doing just that, just staying home yeah, with uh, my pets and my movies on TV. And I just, that's what I did this year. And it was great. How about that sound, you? That What'd sounds you perfect. Well, Tothi, I've, I've entered that phase of life where it's more appropriate that to, to not ask me about, you know, did I go out to some big party? But the, the more appropriate question was, uh, were you awake or asleep at the, uh, the stroke <laughs> of midnight? Uh, if you want to ask about parties, that's probably best uh, asked to my, to my sons. Uh, but I did do a, a first day hike, which uh, I really oh. enjoyed. Hey, now, do you do that? Do you do those in, in Arizona? Uh, you know, we do, but it's on Christmas. That is a Christmas Day tradition for families here in Arizona. And since oh, I've lived neat. out here, I've, I've always loved it. But hey, New Year's Day is good too. I mean, well, what was the weather like in Terre Haute this year? Was it yeah, not, 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 so, not so bad, but, but last year, uh, I had all intentions on doing the first day hike. I was quite, quite excited for it. And then it was like 18 below. We had this just <gasps> incredible record-breaking cold day. Um, to, to start off 18 with, and so th they were scrapped. But but 19 much uh, much better. So thumbs up with uh, with that. And I I like the uh, the Christmas idea too. Although at least here in the Midwest, it seems to be catching on for uh, for a New Year's Day uh, hike. So that's anyway. good. That yeah. sounds fun, and it well, it's a great way to start the year with a little exercise and fresh air. I'm I'm all for that. I right? agree. I agree. And, you know, another good way to, uh, to start off the year is to make sure that your practice is HIPAA compliant. Oh, yes. Well, that is very important for a whole variety of reasons. And that's what you're going to help us with today. So let's talk about HIPAA. Well, we're absolutely going to do that. But, you know, there's something that we have to do first, Dothy. It's your favorite part and my favorite part of the show. Word of the show. And this would be the there first word for... 2019. Exciting. It's, new, it's new year, new word. Here we go. <laughs> so, uh, and, and I have to say, I think that this word is both timely and, and appropriate uh, for this episode of, okay. of sound practice. Here's the word, tutelary. And in case you're wondering, it means serving as a protector or serving as a guardian. As in the medical practice maintained a tutelary relation with its patient's medical records. Oh, well, I am glad that you defined that because I thought it might have had something to do with tutoring, <laughs> but not exactly. So uh, I had it wrong in my small brain and you corrected me and I get it. It's a nice word for today and I see how it applies be, uh, you know, for this HIPAA episode because they practices our guardians of patient medical records, but you also said it was timely. So explain yourself, sir. What do you mean? All right, I'm, I'm going to try, and at the risk of being a, a real nerd, here it comes. This is a, a mythological reference for you, Tothi. Okay. So in, in Roman mythology, uh, the god of 
new beginnings, doorways, gates, transitions was the god Janus. And Janus was the protector of these type of things. So he was a tuliary god. And here's the link to make it timely. Janus is what the month January comes from, oh. as in a gateway from one year to the next. I get so it. There, okay. So there you have it. Yeah. Nerdy, for sure. But oh, none, nonetheless, very interesting. <laughs> and um, I'll see if I can't work tutelary into my vocabulary. I have a year to do it. Give me, a, give me 2019 to work it in. How's that? It'll warm my heart when you do. Okay. Uh, all right. Well, but for now, let's leave word of the show and onward, we'll talk about HIPAA. So um, right. when it comes to HIPAA, I mean, a lot of our listeners are probably just rolling their eyes. Oh, it's another HIPAA show, but we're going to make it a little bit different because you uh, will provide some um, interesting and practical tips. And we're not going to talk about all kinds of scare tactics um, today, but it does seem like it's a tangle of rules and regulations and that seemingly make no sense. But why don't you help the listeners with kind of the 30,000 foot view of HIPAA and why it's important for them to think about? Okay. And and I agree with you. It it is a bit of a tangle and people sometimes, and some of these rules are in part contradictory because they came about at different times. And I I totally get the confusion. So you're right that we need to start with the 30,000 foot view. And the way I look at this is to say, what are we trying to get at with, with HIPAA? And in my mind, HIPAA is in the patient privacy category. And people could argue and say it's greater than that. And, and, and maybe, but for the 30,000 foot view, we're concerned about patient privacy. And here's why that's important. Obviously there's the whole legal thing, right? Um, but what we have in our audience, Tofi, are some really gifted clinicians and people that care about their patients. And so what we need to focus on is why HIPAA is important for patient safety. And I think it is critical for patient safety. And when you view it in that lens, things start to all fall in place. At least they do for me. We know from studies out there that patients fear that their information may be accidentally released or hacked into to such an extent that about 15% of our fellow Americans admit to withholding information from a medical provider because they were afraid that it wouldn't be kept secure. So, now, so that's not good. No, I mean, not at all, to, right? To really diagnose and treat a patient, the physician needs to have all the information, the important right. pieces. Right. You've got to be on the same team. The patient needs to trust you and provide information. I mean, we're, we're physicians, not veterinarians, right? We need to have this interaction. Mm-hmm. So, um, to the extent that people are so fearful because they hear of these one breach after another um, and start withholding information, that is a recipe in my mind for patient safety problems. And so the whole idea of keeping information confidential way before HIPAA, HIPAA didn't come around until 1996, but we know that patient, the the physician-patient confidentiality of that relationship dates back decades before before HIPAA came around. This was just trying to formalize it and provide a few new bells and whistles. But that whole idea of we've got to keep this confidential so people can trust us with their information, we need to see the whole, uh, the whole bailiwick to be able to properly diagnose and treat a patient. And that's really what we're trying to do. And that's what these rules are, are geared to, is to create some uh, protection and integrity in the system. 
I like that perspective because it, it does sort of take us away from just thinking of it as yet another regulation, but really being part of good patient care, patient safety and collaboration with the patient and being on one team, like you said. So, so that's good. I think that's a very helpful overview. So yeah, and because, you know, because I like you, Dorothy, I promise <laughs> I will not cite a single code section okay. for the remainder of our podcast. We'll keep it, uh, we'll keep it broad, broad brush, high, high view, because I think that that's, that's important, right? You get down too much in the minutia of this, people just kind of throw up their hands. So we got to focus in on what's important, and that's protecting patients. That's great. Well, so that said, what are the most common areas that you, as you're out in out and about working with practices, where are you seeing the most common issues with patient privacy? So there are, there are a few different kind of categories. And every year, people go through and try to analyze and create the little pie chart of, you know, this slice of the pie is attributable to this area of a breach and so forth. But I can tell you as general, general categories, you have uh, employees that are doing bad things, right? This is driven by an identity theft or maybe just curiosity. So this inappropriate access of medical records is one category, right? This is within the four walls of of your practice. Also in that same kind of vein, but a little bit different, because now we're not talking about your own staff, but we're talking about people on the outside accessing records. And to me, that is an electronic breach. Say somebody hacks into your system or a ransomware attack where your system is tied up with malware and you can't access patient records. So that this electronic component from the outside, I think is a large category of of problems, right? And then the area that is surprisingly large that most practices don't focus on is the business associate category. In many years, it's upwards of 60% of breaches come from third parties that practices trust medical records with. And so many of my clients and people I deal with are concerned, rightfully so, of what's going on inside their four walls. But if you think about it, odds are the problem's going to happen outside of the walls at at, at a 60% level. So we really need to, to think as business associates as a separate category of risk. So you've mentioned three things. There's the internal risk stuff, somebody in the practice getting access to information, then the external uh, like, I don't know, phishing scams or things that come through right. email or other people who come in and hack. But then this third bucket is a big, more than, you said 60% of the in, breaches In that are, category, varies oh, from year to year, right? 57%, but, but, but north of 50%. So if I'm thinking in terms of priorities, if it's more than half of the breaches, then this is a really big bucket to focus on. And I think you're right. Most practices are focused don't focus as much attention on that. So since you brought that up, why don't we talk about business associates for a moment? What are some of the specific things practices can do to protect themselves? All right. So let let me start off with what is a business associate? So people can kind of have an idea what we're talking about. And the the law defines a business associate as someone who's not, not a medical provider, but has access to patient information to help a provider. And that could be somebody like me, who's an attorney, or a transcription service, an electronic medical record service. All all these are are things that are ancillary supporting of the practice, but are not practicing medicine or taking care of of patients. And so that's, that's kind of the category. Now, occasionally people say, well, what about 
like the um, the electrician that comes in to change light bulbs or or do mm -hmm. some work uh, in the back. And I would say that those people are not business associates. This brings up this confusion between having access to and having responsibility to work with information. So that that electrician who's changing the light bulbs doesn't have any business seeing medical records. And so I don't believe falls in the business associate category. You still need to protect those records, but they're not technically a business associate because it's not their job to work with that information. So, so let's just step back here. So the definition then really needs to be that the business associate has a reason to be interacting with the patient data, patient medical record being that primary source of that data. Yes. That, An electrician that, that, wouldn't. They'd that's be right. Managing That's your right. sockets and your whatever they're doing, but their 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 job duty isn't contingent on them getting access to the patient's record. I think that that that's right. So okay. uh, it's it's a bit of a fine line, and you can make it even more uh, clouded by saying, well, what if it's a backup? Uh, somebody who provides backup for your computers and they don't really look at the data, but they have it. And most people mm -hmm. would say that's still a business associate because part of what they're doing is maintaining a database of, of records and those records are protected, blah, blah. But in general, th those are the ideas. And why this is significant is not only that you're providing information, a business associate with your patient information, but you are required under law to have a contract with them, a business associate agreement. Mm -hmm. So we need to identify who these people are so we can have, we can meet our duty and have a contract with them. Well, and um, you, isn't it true with the business associates, you and I have written on this topic and those business associates, they have a duty to do certain things and protect your information in certain ways. And then you need to have, of course, this business associate agreement with them but they may or may not actually have the uh, protection systems in place that are required. And I think that that I, I've heard that I've heard you talk about how in smaller organizations that can be a real problem um, with uh, the, some of these business associate business associates. They're just not large enough to maybe conduct a risk analysis or some of the other things they're supposed to do. Why don't you talk about right? So what to do there. Right. So you want to have some, some protections built in for, for yourself and your practice and your patients in these business associate agreements. And so the business associate is uh, to, uh, to do certain things and keep the information protected at the, at the right levels. But sometimes smaller kind of mom and pop providers don't have the knowledge or the infrastructure to do that. So you need to be real careful. And I suggest uh, a couple of things. One, that you make sure that your business associate has some degree of insurance because if something goes bad, you want a pot of money there to uh, help, mm. help remedy the, uh, the problem, right? Okay. Um, moving away from mom and pop, sometimes we have business associates that are outside of the jurisdiction of the United States. I mean, maybe it's some kind of European software provider. Who, who knows, right? Mm -hmm. A backup server farm in Uzbekistan. I, I don't know. But you know that if the business associate isn't in the U.S., there could be problems because you're held to certain legal standards here in the country, but there's no way to hold those people to the same legal standards if they're not in this country. So I like to see business associates at least be in the U.S. or U.S. territories so the law applies to them just like it does to medical providers. Right, and I'm starting to think about this just um, drilling down on kind of the what would I do this year if I'm concerned that maybe not all of my business associates have 
the things in place that, that I'm supposed to. Maybe I would start by listing all those businesses. Who am I? Who am I doing? Who has access to my patient data? Do I have updated business associates agreements with them? And as part of that, are all these new tenants, um, all the tenants of what they're supposed to follow under HIPAA, are they followed? How how would is that how I'd go about that? As a I, think, I think I think you're you're lining it out right. So the first way I tell people it's a good time of the year because you're going to be uh, or your accounting firm is going to be dashing off 1099s to people that have provided service to your practice. So that list is a pretty good one to start to see who uh, on the list have we paid that yeah. really falls in the business associate category. Because my guess is you don't have a lot of business associates out there just doing things for you out of the goodness of your heart, right? They're getting paid, right? So nothing wrong with that. Um, But that's a good place to find the list of who all did we pay last year? And do we have, which ones on that list are business associates meet the definition? And then do we have a contract with them, a business associate agreement? Once we have that list made up, now we at least know, do we need a a business associate agreement? Does it need to be updated? Uh, where, Where we are. I think it's good to do an update, and I know this is difficult and it takes a little bit of time, but if you could ask your business associates, or at least your primary ones, um, who's your point of contact there? Because if a problem happens, Tothi, at seven o'clock on a Friday evening, you wanna be able to reach for someone at that business associate. So do you have a cell phone number of someone, some way to get a hold of these people if there's a problem after hours? And who's, who's your contact? Do they have any kind of insurance? Uh, just a little refresher, right? Because they may have had insurance three years ago and not have it today. Mm-hmm. Uh, or maybe you're doing a whole lot more with them. And at the time, it didn't really matter if they had insurance because they had such a limited amount of your information that, yeah, so what? But now they have all kinds of your patient's information and it's really important that they have an insurance policy. So I think that's something that's worth revisiting as well. Just a little tick list. Do we have a current contact for these people, the agreement in place current, and do they have the appropriate amount of coverage um, in the event that something goes horribly wrong? And I think that that should take care of what you need with business associates. Good. Oh, that's, that's excellent. A great thing to put on the list for the year. Um, I also want to talk about cyber insurance because you are a big fan of this, Mike. You're going to explain what it is. Why, why should practices be thinking about getting a cyber insurance policy? Okay, I, I freely admit I'm a huge fan of, of, of cyber insurance. And I don't sell insurance. I don't get anything if people go out and buy it. I'm a customer myself from my practice. We buy cyber, standalone cyber insurance. My wife uh, pract- has a practice as a medical provider, and, and we have cyber insurance for that. So I, I certainly am, am trying to lead by, by example here. And it, it's not because... I think it's just such a, a nice thing to um, to have. It's because I think it's absolutely necessary and it is catastrophic or can be if you don't have the right coverage. Most policies out there, traditional professional liability policies, either don't have cyber included. Now most of them do, but it's at a relatively low amount, 50000 or $100,000 worth of okay. coverage. Tothi, there's this group out of, uh, out of Michigan, Podemon Institute, that every year looks at what does it cost on a per-person basis when there's an electronic breach to, do, to remedy it, to bring in the lawyers, to bring in the tech people to figure it all out, to send out notices, buy identity theft protection, all this stuff that comes with having a breach. They're saying for healthcare providers, it's north of $200 per patient or per chart. 
That's a lot when you start to multiply how many patients are in your EMR system times 220, 230, $240 is a enormous number. And $50,000 does not, my wife's a solo practitioner and she works three to four days a week. It would not cover her practice, let alone some practice that has multiple providers that are Mm -hmm. seeing a whole lot, lot more people. So I'm always concerned that there is not enough coverage there uh, for cyber instances. And these are not small breaches, right? Somebody gets into your electronic medical records, the odds of them getting into three or four charts, but not all the rest is pretty low. They're either going to get in or they're not. Right. Uh, a lot of times, and it's usually a big, uh, if it's not all the records, it's a decent sized subset of all of your records. So these are not small breaches and can be very expensive, very, very expensive to deal with. And therefore, I think just for your own protection, you need to get some cyber insurance. So cyber insurance would cover me if I had a breach and then you have all those things you're supposed to do. You have to make an announcement. You have to notify your patients, letters, all that kind of thing. Plus, so any costs related to that, maybe extra staff or obviously printing or all those things you do. And then would it also cover any, would I need attorney fees here or no? Well, they, they usually will, will cover that, like defense costs in the event oh, just, that, yeah, okay. uh, that, that somebody, uh, somebody brings some type of a claim or you're being investigated by the attorney general of your state. I mean, we can think of all kinds of horrific things okay. that we want coverage for, right? Um, and then some of them even go to the point of providing business interruption because if you have all these kind of problems, you're probably not seeing patients for some time period. I see. Um, and so... You know, There's a cost that, to that. that kick in, right, yeah. if you've got your staff sitting without any patients for a couple of days or longer. So there, there are different varieties, and one of the keys to look for is first-party uh, first coverage versus third-party coverage. And so first-party is you, dollars that you get paid, and third-party is uh, dollars that get paid out to, um, to handle, in this case, the, the, the patients, you know, responding to the patients. And so, so we're... And where would uh, where would a, a physician or practice leader start with cyber insurance? They just call their reg- their their insurance agent that they use today and say, "Hey, I, do you have do you cover do you offer these policies? And can we get a quote?" Is that how it works? I think so. Uh, that's where I would start is with the broker that you feel comfortable with. Cyber insurance is becoming more and more mainstream. I mean, if we had this discussion years ago, I would say that you needed a specialist that really knew the difference in the policies. But it's become common enough now. I think people are getting up to speed on it. I'd start with your uh, broker of, of choice. And if he or she uh, can't answer your questions, then you can move on from there, but you should be okay. Okay. All right. Um, you're always in the business of protecting us. So thank you for that. <laughs> thank you for that soapbox on um, cyber insurance. It's good stuff. And I think uh, something wound everyone, up. everyone should have it on their list for 2019 to explore the cost of that and get some in place. Um, and now I'm very interested to hear because you didn't share these with me yet. Some of the interesting HIPAA cases that you've uncovered in this in last year. Um, tell us some of the stories uh, about HIPAA issues so, and practices in hospitals. So there, you know, there, there's the garden variety ones and, and I don't try to downplay this because if it happens to you, it's really horrible and you know, everything else right about your system gets hacked into and there's ransomware or whatever. And there are unfortunately lots of people out there that have experienced that and it, it's awful, but 
it's not really entertaining. One that is entertaining that came out and was reported on this year with a, with a, a large fine involved a hospital in, um, in Boston, I believe, that decided that they were going to allow filming in the ER for a kind of reality-based television show. What? Uh, called, yeah, called Boston, Boston Trauma, I believe. Okay. And, um, and, and the idea was that, you know, to be follow real-life trauma surgeons and ER docs and whatnot and kind of a day in the life and you get the idea, right? Yeah. <laughs> what could go wrong with that? Uh, what could go wrong with that? that kind of setting, right. <laughs> um, so anyways, there were some, there were some bad, bad things that happened. Um, unfortunately, a patient's expiring and um, family members watching the video at a later date on oh, television, no. these kind of things. Yes. Very, very, very bad um, things. So there was a large a fine, um, uh, that was paid uh, in relation to to that to that, but one that kind of falls in the same category, but one that I could see a lot of people making a mistake deals with a few uh, physicians. It was a three physician practice in Pennsylvania, and a patient was um, was really upset that there is, as I understand it, their their service animal. Now, I don't know if this was. Um, for a physical disability or an emotional support, I'm, I'm, I'm not entirely clear, but that the animal for some reason was not welcomed into the practice. And my guess is that because it was an allergy practice, but I, I, I don't have all of that background. But what the patient did was she phoned the local news cast, right? Complaining about this practice mm -hmm. and what they did and how they excluded the animal and blah, 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 right? And what would any good journalist do? pick up the phone and call the practice, right? Call the physician in question for their side of the story. Right. Right. And so the physician gave their side of the story on this, the practice's side of the, the story about what, uh, what happened about this patient and so forth. And that was a, a clear a violation um, because the patient had not given permission for the disclosure of any of her medical uh, records out there, even though you would think by contacting the local media, the local television show to talk about your physician, people would assume that you have waived your rights. Yeah. Uh, right? Wrong. Um, and there was a, a substantial six-figure uh, penalty that was, uh, that was paid on this, in addition to you know, all the other kinds of internal costs that the practice went through, I assume, hiring lawyers and, and all of that. So this is, you know, you're talking about a three-person uh, uh, practice. Um, six figures is a lot of money to have to pay out as a penalty. So uh, the, less, so the lesson learned there is even if you have a disgruntled patient that alerts the media and you get a call, or doesn't have to be the media, anyone, you still have to think, even though the patient is saying, hey, call the, you know, I'm unhappy with this doctor, call the practice, you still need to wait, don't say yeah. anything. Get the signature, it, 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 get the, right? Exactly, it, it, exactly. Don't assume, don't assume it's okay just because the, the, the patient, him or herself, has opened the communication that you can say anything. And yeah, I, the, the patient has the right to do whatever they want with their own medical records. They can put it on the side of a bus for all, for all we care. But that doesn't then give any additional rights to the practice. They have to protect it just the same as if the patient had never said a word. Mm -hmm. it's, you have to get the, the permission of the patient because it's their, their record. So where this plays out more frequently instead of a local television station is on the Internet 
where someone will go in and um, rant and rave about a physician in some kind of negative review. And then the practice looks at it and says, well, that's just clearly not true. Um, I, I have all kinds of documentation to show that what this patient is saying is not, is not right. And there's that res- feeling that they want to clear their name or uh, clear up the record by laying out the facts in response to the patient's allegations. And that's where you get into trouble. Wow. All kinds of things to sidestep. Do you have any other stories, uh, cases for us on HIPAA Um, this past year before we talk about action? No, I mean, I I think that there, there are always uh, some, some smaller, smaller cases that are, are interesting um, and maybe not so, I mean, they're interesting to a HIPAA guy because they're unusual, but Mm -hmm. I don't think that that's terribly useful to, to our audience, right? I think our audience needs to focus in on the bigger categories and where they need to go for 2019 to be, to be um, protected. Good. Well, then let's talk about some of the specific to-dos that they have. We've kind of covered a lot on business associates. You've talked about cyber insurance. What are some of the quick to-dos that practices can uh, put on their list when it comes to HIPAA compliance in 2019? Okay. Training. A little bit of training goes a long way, right? And you're obligated each year to, to train staff. So you'll want, you'll want to do that um, on, on patient patient privacy issues. We talked about dealing with your business associates. And then you're, you're supposed to do on a routine basis a security risk analysis, which is a top-to-bottom look at how you handle uh, patient information, protected health information. And hopefully you've done one. Uh, I know the law doesn't really help by saying uh, do, do this on a routine basis. Most people think that that's every 12 to 18 months unless something has changed, like you've relocated or gotten all new software, and then you should really do it you know, more, more frequently than that. Mm-hmm. Um, but put that on your list, because I will tell you that the, the HIPAA police out there, uh, which is really the Office of Civil Rights and your attorney general, uh, typically ask for your most current uh, security risk analysis is the first thing when there's a problem. Before they even show up, they want to see some documents. And so if people were to ask me what's the the one most important thing to have, I think that it's a current uh, risk analysis. So put that high on the list. Well, and let me ask you a question about that, Mike, because I have read that the risk security risk analysis is something that many practices are foregoing year after year. So if it's been a year or more for the listeners out there, is it okay to ask their IT guy that does their current uh, computer consulting in their network, or do they need a specialist? How, how would they go about finding somebody to conduct a security risk analysis in a in a cost effective way, knowing that a lot of our practices out there have you know tight budgets and they're small businesses? So, what do you suggest? So, the, the first thing I would suggest is the Office of Civil Rights has some online tools to help, and these are free and available all the time. You can go on and go on and take a look. So, you can, you can start there. I think it's it's difficult for someone, if they're your vendor, to tell you, and in, in they're in charge of dealing with your patient information in electronic form, for them to self-assess and tell you where the flaws are, right? Um, I think that that's, it's difficult. It doesn't mean that it's illegal or, or not, uh, not appropriate. I just think that you might not get as good of information as if it was a third party reviewing what you have in place. 
because everybody's the same. No one wants to come out and say, hey, I could do, be doing a whole lot better job for you here, here, and there. I messed up here. I messed up there. Oops. Yeah, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. So um, <laughs> thank you very much. Now send me a check. Right. So yeah, don't, don't think that's going to happen. But look, they can. You can go through and you can talk about things that you hope to upgrade at a different point and all that. All that's, all that's uh, legal and, and impermissible. So you do not have to have an independent third party do this risk analysis. You can try to do this yourself based off of tools or have your business associates provide some information. And that does help keep the cost down. I'd recommend that people occasionally use an independent third party, but not do that every year because you're right, it's expensive. But if you could mix it in every third year, for example, or every other year, maybe, um, it, it reduces the expense, but you still get the benefit of a, um, an outside view on how you're handling patient information. Okay, good. Fair enough. Um, I'd like to end by looking toward the future. Tell me what trends do you see in patient privacy and HIPAA brewing for the year ahead? What do you think we can expect to see um, with your crystal you ball? <laughs> I'll put on my uh, my turban and get busy. Yeah. Um, so, so here's what I would say. If you would have asked me this, this question a year ago, um, I probably would have given a rather bland answer and said, you know, we can uh, expect a few different things to happen and blah, blah. But Right at the end of 2018, I mean, like in December, right, there have been a number of calls for major am amendments and changes to HIPAA, including by groups such as the uh, Medical uh, uh, Group Managers Association. Mm -hmm. In fact, the Office of Civil Rights, who really oversees HIPAA and the High Tech Act at the federal level, has even called for comments on how to revise HIPAA. So I think that we are going to see, and I can't tell you specifically what changes are coming, but I feel very confident that changes are coming because even the, the regulators are asking for comments on how to change things. Mm -hmm. And major medical groups are chiming in saying, hey, this stuff's got to be uh, got to be changed here and there. Um, so that that is the biggest um, ship on the horizon. We are also still waiting for guidelines to come out on texting and emailing of patients. And we were told that these were in the works and would be uh, coming out uh, some time ago. So it's a little bit of, um, you know, like Charlie Brown waiting for the, uh, the girl or Linus waiting for the great pumpkin. Yeah, the great you know, we're kind of in the field uh, <laughs> looking around at midnight and, uh, and nothing there. But we should expect that there be some guidance and maybe that'll be wrapped up into these new rules. Um, but we have all been kind of hanging on edge because if you, the technical reading of how uh, HIPAA and the High Tech Act is supposed to, to work uh, seems to me to be violated 70 to 80 percent of practicing physicians by how they use their um, their smartphones mm -hmm. uh, and texting patients directly or receiving texting orders and all these kind of things, uh, emailing in ways that are, are not secure. And so the reality of practice in my mind does not match uh, the, the, the law. And so we're hoping for some guidance on this and specific information. And we were told that it was coming and it hasn't hit yet. So we can only hope that 2019 brings some, uh, some clarity and some things we can hang on to that are actually practical and, and usable for the uh, medical uh, providers out there. Here's to hoping. Practical regulatory guidance. How's that? 
Absolutely. <laughs> and here's to a, uh, a hip and new year. Okay, Mike. So as we move toward the exit, I wanted to say that I thought that interview provided some, you, you have helped our practices and physicians and leaders out there be better tutelary stewards of their patient medical records. Woohoo! Very nice use of the word of the show. All right. I am quite impressed. I think I got that right. You had some terrific specifics, to-dos for folks, training being the top of that list. Also, I think folks out there are going to look into cyber insurance because that policy is very important for them for covering costs. And um, with this time of year, all those 1099s coming through from the accountant, um, use that as a list against which they make sure all their business associate agreements are in place, updated, and that, that they're covered in those ways. Would it, that be fair? I think so. Ab- absolutely. That's, that's exactly right. Okay. And I think in the show notes, we're going to put, your, uh, put uh, a link to the OIG. Hopefully, we can find the page that has those specific tools. You mentioned that there are some free tools that folks can use to help with the um, uh, risk, security risk analysis. So we'll do uh, only- that. Yeah, only because we really care for our, our audience, Tothi, will we do the specific uh, page. Because <laughs> that website is uh, is way out of date. And I will publicly say it, I would rather, you know, remove my left kidney with a butter knife than to try to go through their website. But <laughs> that look, bad? we will do it. We'll do it. We'll find okay. uh, specific we'll, places that will help people. We'll do it. You know what? Probably Google will do it better. This is what I find is a great tip when uh, you can't find things on government websites because they're so complicated. Just go to Google, type into Google the couple of keywords and bam, it almost almost invariably in the top two search results, it'll be the right page. So we'll try that. We'll hope for the best. And good. So that's it for this episode of Sound Practice, the first episode of 2019. Thanks for listening. If you liked our show, please rate it. Um, That helps other people find it. And you can review us You review us on Apple Podcasts or Google Play, right? Absolutely. And please join us for our next episode. Don't forget, we drop a new episode every other Wednesday. Tothi, it's that time of the year. New Year's resolutions. Ah, yes, it is. Do you have any for 2019? Well... I thought about, you know, the standard go-to ones, right? The gym membership, the reduction mm-hmm. of sugar intake, volunteering more. Yeah, those all sound familiar and they're all good ones. But uh, gym membership, you, I am not so sure about that one. And I sense a little hesitation in general about this resolution thing. What's up with that? Well, yeah, you, you know how it is. Just experience in general robs me of any hope that I will self-motivate <laughs> in 2019. My signature on those gym memberships, Tothi, you know, you sign them in January. By March, it has just led to wild irritation with myself. Those gym, those gyms, they are the payday lenders of the personal health world. They're out there, they're preying on my momentary good intentions, and they're really banking on that ingrained disgust that I have for, for exercise. <laughs> just, wow. just thinking of it just is jacking up my blood pressure. I'm telling well, you that right now. I can tell. And uh, 
I guess I have a question for you. In, in past years, as you talk about this experience, have you ever actually showed up at the gym after you uh, signed the contract? Okay. That was maybe a little uncalled for. Borderline <laughs> cruel question there, Tothi. But, but I'll give you the fair answer. Yeah, right. I, I've been inside. Usually I was inside when I was signing that membership. Okay. But, and then thereafter, I, I drive by. And as I look over at the gym, as I drive by, I push down a little bit more on the accelerator and think, ah, why did I ever do that? Yeah, <laughs> Easy. Easy there, my friend. It sounds like uh, you need a different resolution for 2019. So maybe you need one that helps you move towards success, not necessarily a trimmer waistline. I have just the thing for you and our listeners, and that is a subscription to the Journal of Medical Practice Management. It'll help listeners improve their management skills and become more effective leaders, and it gets mailed every other month throughout the year to keep you on track. Oh, perfect. What a great idea. And unlike those gym memberships, it won't cause me to break a sweat or even spray pieces of equipment with some kind of dilute sanitizer. Oh my God, who wants to do that? I know. This is a super idea. Where do I sign up, Tothi? Well, you just go to greenbranch.com, click on the image of the cover of the Journal of Medical Practice Management, which is right on the homepage, and you are good to go. Oh, brilliant. Thanks, Tothi. Bada bing, bada boom. Bada bing, bada boom. You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and practice leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions about future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at Green Branch Publishing. For the best in practice management, journals, books, newsletters, and on-demand programming for physicians and practice executives, visit greenbranch.com.